0: The National Archives podcast series, new information on William Wallace's rising and execution, and on Edward I's conquest of Scotland, presented by John Reuben Davies. Between the middle of May and the end of August 1296, the King of England, Edward I, and his army rode unopposed through Scotland. This journey of more than three months' duration was the postlude to the defeat of the feudal host of Scotland at Dunbar on the 27th of April and the surrender of Roxburgh Castle by James the Stuart uh, a week or so later. But it was also the prelude to the great parliament of Berwick on the 28th of August, 1296, when the English king formally received into his goodwill and faith the prelates, earls, barons, nobles, and the civic communities which constituted the realm of Scotland. Edward's journey of summer 1296 has no parallel in the history of the British Isles. And I'm hard pressed to think of a parallel in the history of Western Europe. The English King proceeded unopposed to the Murray Firth. On the way, the King of Scots was deposed ritually and ceremonially humiliated and taken prisoner. And finally, at the end of the journey, nearly every person and community of significance in Scotland performed fealty once again, and the tenants in chief did homage. This royal itinerary around Scotland, the Parliament at Berwick and the fealty and homage of the Scots that attended them form the background and basis of a set of documents at the National Archives that have come to be known as the Ragman Roll. Now Edward I's campaign of 1296 was a triumphant success And the expedition developed into little more than a grand royal and military progress around the Scottish realm. Edward followed an eastern coastal route via Edinburgh, Stirling, Perth, Forfa, Montrose, Kincardine, Aberdeen, Banff, and Elgin, returning via a similar route and taking in Kildrummy, Brechin, Arbroath, Dundee, and St. Andrews, until he reached Berwick-upon-Tweed again on Wednesday the 22nd of August, the octave of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And soon after King Edward had begun his itinerary, uh, King John Baliol was required to surrender his kingdom of the Scots, formally break the, the Great Seal, and submit himself unconditionally to the King of England's will. And King Edward didn't even dignify him with his presence Edward's plenipotentiary, the Bishop of Durham, Anthony Beck, stood in his place. And during this circular process around Scotland, Edward also, as I've said, received the individual submission and fealty of the Scottish and Anglo-Scottish nobles, prelates, landholders, and burgesses. Each act of fealty was performed in person in front of witnesses, The oath of fealty was accompanied by open letters written in French embodying the promises made and once um, fealty had been performed the person performing fealty set his uh, pendant seal to the letters patent and then the whole process then appears to have been more or less repeated at the Parliament of Berwick on the 28th of August which is where this uh, particular one is from. And here, as the documentary evidence seems to tell us, over 1,500 individuals performed fealty. And so at Berwick, fealty was performed either individually or in groups. Over the whole process, the acts were recorded in more than 180 deeds, with each individual or community attaching their own seal, and of these original deeds, about 70 survive preserved in the records of the Exchequer, uh, collection E39 Scottish documents here at the National Archives. Now, the Ragman roll is the name uh, traditionally given to the manuscript rolls into which these deeds of fealty came to be copied several years after the event by a notary public called Andrew of Tong three almost identical and comprehensive copies of the enrolled Deeds of Homage and Fealty of 1296 were commissioned and completed, all written by the same man over the course of six years. And they survive uh, here again at the National Archives as uh, C47-23-3, stroke stroke 4, and 5. And the rolls vary in length. Uh, The shortest is about 27 yards long, and the the longest about 34 yards. Um, And it takes a long time to to roll them back up again, I can tell you. And the second roll is particularly awkward because it's been rolled up back to front, so it has to be completely unrolled in order to start at the beginning. Now, we first hear about Master Andrew, Andrew of Tong, as a notary engaged by Durham Cathedral Priory. His role at Durham might explain why he was present as a notary in Scotland in 1296, because the Bishop of Durham, Anthony Beck, uh, was also present. And indeed, it, it was, as, as I've already said, to Bishop Antony that King John Balliol had resigned the Kingdom of Scotland. By 1298, Master Andrew had entered royal service and as a valued servant of the crown was receiving 80 pounds a year in 1300 and from 1300 to 1306 his main task was producing uh, the ragman roll. And notaries public at this time were specially trained officers of one or other, sometimes both, of the two international authorities of medieval Europe, the Apostolic See or the Holy Roman Empire. And Master Andrew acted under the authority of the Apostolic See. And so, anyway, a notary public, uh, therefore, had the status of a quasi-independent official representing um, this, one of these supranational authorities, And if an agreement had to be drawn up between two parties or any other legal proceeding needed to be verified, the notary public would record its terms in a public instrument and would then authenticate it, not by sealing the document, but by declaring in the concluding passage, called the subscription or um, the eschatical, that he was uh, present at the transaction, bearing witness to the truth of his record, and that he added his personal sign, or signum, as evidence of it. And each notary public has his own special sign. And um, it's th- these, these, these signa are unique to each uh, individual notary public. And so each copy of the Ragman roll is itself a form of public instrument an authentic document of record. It's not simply a copy of other documents. I'll say that again. Each copy of the Ragman roll is a form of public instrument. It's an authentic document in its own right. Not just a copy. Now the subscription, or eschatical, gives us a detailed account of how Master Andrew went about producing the roll. He tells us that he was present at each and every one of the transactions, the acts of fealty or homage, together with the witnesses whom he's recorded on the days and at the places where they were performed and therefore saw and heard each and every one of them take place as they happened. The whole text describing each act is written in his own hand, in this case um, on 41 parchment membranes together with the texts of the letters of fealty and homage. He's copied each document word for word, not adding or subtracting anything, as he says, with the help of a chaplain in this case, Robert of Osbaldwick, and a clerk, John of Langwith, and he's checked all the texts of the letters against the originals and made some corrections. Then each correction is then described, the number of the membrane, the line number, and what has been added. He's drawn his signum um, over the, the the join in the membranes, so that uh, you can't separate them or add anything in between. Another example um, by John uh, John Bush. Here is the uh, original uh, foliation mark, so you can go from the escauticle to find uh, the thirty-fifth membrane. And then you find the appropriate line that he's referred to, and you can see that he's added in Henry of Stirling. And he tells you this in the eschatical, so um, you know that's an authentic uh, addition. So all the corrections have been written by Master Andrew himself, uh, and he's put his signum at the end as well of the document, across every seam, as I've said, and in this way... The authenticity of the instrument could be guaranteed. No membranes could be added and no corrections made. The payment of £80 to Andrew for making two of the rolls, so £40 each, Um, took them quite a long time to pay him, not till uh, he finished in 1306 and he wasn't paid till 1313. So as you've seen, there there are three copies of the roll kept by the three Uh, principal departments of the royal administration, the royal government, one in the exchequer, one in the chancery, and one in the wardrobe. Master Andrew had recorded each individual act of fealty and described the events in Latin in in the protocol prefacing a full and exact copy of the French text of each of the deeds of fealty. And then comparison of the roles against the original deeds of fealty that survive shows only very odd minor differences in the spelling of names which should be put down to perhaps the things being dictated. Otherwise, they're absolutely faithful copies, and Andrew Tong's assertion of the authenticity of his record, I think, can be taken at face value. But the great issue of contention is whether or not all of the 1,500 or so people whose deeds of fealty are dated at Berwick on the 28th of August 1296, on the occasion of Edward I's great parliament, were actually there in person. Uh, Now, Professor Geoffrey Barrow in his book, uh, a well-known book, uh, Scottish historians Robert Bruce, uh, someone once said it's the best book on Scottish history ever written, he says it's hard to believe, though most historians appear to believe, that all these persons were actually present together at Berwick on that or any other date, these 1,500 people uh, that I've been talking about. And Professor Barrow's interpretation of events was that the names and fealties were collected on the basis of sheriffdoms. And it's likely that during July and August, the sheriffs were responsible for taking the fealties and sending or bringing the instruments, recording them to the English officials at Berwick. Now, we us remember that uh, judging by the surviving original deeds, the notary has provided absolutely faithful copies. They were dated at Berwick and sealed with the personal seals of the subjects. In order to agree with Professor Barrow's view of events, we need to suppose two circumstances. First, that the deeds were dated at Berwick despite having been written and sealed either well in advance or much later elsewhere, and secondly, that the notary public who had taken such care in every respect in the production of the Ragman roll had committed perjury. And I, for one, am inclined to believe uh, Andrew of Tong's version of events, and there are other uh, precedents for this, in particular the uh, 1205 um, mass swearing of oaths to uh, King John at at Marlborough, when there were 3,000 people um, performed uh, fealty. So I'll I'll now move on to the uh, second bit of of my section of this talk, the materials that I've uh, f- been working on here on William Wallace. Now, one of the distinctive things about William Wallace is, among um, many others, is that he wasn't one of the people who performed fealty in 1296. His name doesn't appear anywhere in the Ragman Roll. And, of course, as I'm sure you all know, William Wallace is, uh, well, certainly modern Scotland's preeminent patriot and hero, he died on Monday the 23rd of August 1305 at the um, Elms of Smithfield in front of the Priory Church of St. Bartholomew the Great in the city of London. And the execution coincided with the eve of St. Bartholomew, the Priory's Patronal Festival, and the first day of St. Bartholomew's Fair, which is one of the most important fairs, if not the most important fair in the whole of England. And it seems that Wallace had been brought down specially to be executed at this place, at this time. It's not quite unique that he was, he was brought to London to be executed, but there are plenty of other examples of people suffering his type of execution um, who, who weren't brought to London, in particular, David um, Ab- Griffith, who died at uh, Shrewsbury in, in, uh, in 1273. Now, the spectacle of Wallace's judicial killing formed, as it were, the opening pageant of this three-day festival, uh, St. Bartholomew's Fair. And one wonders whether it was more than a coincidence that the Scotsman, who according to the Chronicle of Lanacost, having flayed Hugh Cressingham, King Edward's treasurer of Scotland, and made a baldric, a sword belt from his skin, was put to death on the Feast of the Apostle who had suffered the same end as Cressingham. Saint Bartholomew was um, died by being flayed, and Wallace was, had flayed one of uh, King Edward's most important officials in Scotland, and he was then butchered um, uh, outside the church uh, of the patron saint of butchers um, next to a meat market. Now, the manner of Wallace's end is familiar to a wide public. As a traitor, Wallace was drawn to the gallows on a hurdle by horses through the streets of London. As a robber and homicide, he was hanged by the neck until not quite dead. Still alive, he was cut down in order that, as a desecrator of churches, he could be deprived of his genitals and internal organs, which were then burned on a fire. Finally, as an outlaw, his head was cut off, and the spectacle complete the head was displayed on London Bridge and the rest of the body divided into four parts and the dismembered corpse was sent northwards to Scotland with one quarter being deposited on the way for display at Newcastle-upon-Tyne the other three parts going in turn to Berwick-upon-Tweed St Johnston, that's Perth and Stirling Now Wallace's execution is um, a classic scene from one of history's great tragedies the death of a national hero, bloodthirsty judicial killing, the demonstrative and exemplary justice of an English king. But the trial and execution of William Wallace, like any other event, had to be directed (coughs) and stage-managed, and although the culmination was brutal and bloody, the justice and judgment done to Wallace were nonetheless liable to cash expenditure prisoner had to be held in custody and taken to the place of trial under guard, executioners needed to be paid, the instruments of death prepared, and in Wallace's case, there was the additional expense and logistics of transporting the dismembered corpse to several locations hundreds of miles northwards. Now, um, a record of the administrative operation going on in the background of Wallace's final days can be traced through the archives here of Edward I's three departments of government, the chancery, exchequer, and wardrobe. And it turns out that we still have something to learn from the payment books of the king's wardrobe and the forbidding memoranda and pipe rolls that were yearly produced by the exchequer. And a few years ago, one historian wrote that in the frustrating business of uncovering the truth about the historical William Wallace, there is likely to be little more hard evidence to find although small miracles are possible. Well, such small miracles are indeed possible. Uh, in the last year or so, some startling new evidence has come to light about Wallace's leadership of the Scottish Rebellion in 1297, which my uh, my colleague Professor Broome will tell you about in a short while, and also about the charges on which Wallace was condemned. Although we thought the carcass of evidence for Wallace had been graded to the bone, Archives have nevertheless produced two succulent morsels of flesh. Now, in the 19th century, the holdings of the Public Record Office were surveyed by several historians of Scotland, the best known being the two Josephs, Stevenson and Bain. And Stevenson and Bain didn't look at the pipe rolls beyond those that had been calendared. And so references later than the reign of King John uh, were not included in their surveys. Um, Now, we'll begin with an entry in uh, a document that's known to scholarship but hasn't been printed. Um, In the National Archives here, um, there's this imperfect book of payments made by the wardrobe in the uh, years 33 and 34 of Edward I's reign, so that's 1304 to 1306, and, and the following account appears. Um, to Sir John Seagrave as an advance for conveying the body of William Wallace the Scotsman divided into four parts to Scotland, the money having been paid to him by John of Lincoln and Roger of Paris, the sheriffs of London, by the king's writ under the privy seal, and said Sir John's letters patent testifying to the receipt of the money having been delivered in the wardrobe at Westminster on the 23rd day of April in the 34th year, 15 shillings. One expects this ledger to be a bone-dry record of expenditure. Those four Latin words, in quatuor partes divisum, divided into four parts, they betray the macabre, and the entry takes on a, a rather bloody hue. And Sir John Seagrave, the official to whom 15 shillings had been paid out, um, as, as a press, a cash advance to cover the expenses of conveying Wallace's quartered body back to Scotland, was the King's lieutenant in Scotland and had been responsible for the entire process of Wallace's transportation as prisoner from Scotland to London, his trial and his execution. And the wardrobe must have taken responsibility for the payment and used the Privy Seal, which it controlled, to get it made through the Sheriffs of London. Now, the City of London, as you no doubt aware, always had two sheriffs, and so we see the names, John of Lincoln and Roger of Paris. John was a vintner and Roger a mercer, and uh, they were sheriffs of London and Middlesex for the 33rd year of Edward I's reign, 1304 to 1305. All documents relating to household expenditure were deposited and preserved in the wardrobe, the largest office of the royal household was, in fact, the principal spending department of central government. And the entry, this entry in the wardrobe book is the counterpart to a better-known record from the memoranda rolls that Joseph Stevenson had noticed in the 1870s. Now, the entry in the memoranda rolls is um, the source cited by most historians uh, for John Seagray's role in transporting Wallace's body northwards and for the payment of f- 15 shillings. So 15 shillings, which um, they've paid to John Seagrave in the month of August in the 33rd year, etc. Then the the important bit is is the little interlinear uh, addition. Afterwards, 10 shillings are allowed in the roll. So it seems to indicate that when it came to writing it all up in the pipe roll, for some reason, the allowance was pulled down from 15 shillings to 10 shillings. And this is the thing. Fifteen uh, ten shillings are allowed in the roll, and this is this is this is where it as it were, um, the new st- the really new stuff comes in. what is the roll, and it must be the pipe roll. so off I scuttled to look at the pipe roll. Um, and as you know the pipe rolls are so called because when rolled up they look like a big section of drain pipe and they contain the accounts um, of the farm of the counties the fixed sum that the sheriffs paid to the king for the income from the king's lands and other rights uh, in, in the county there are also records of expenses which could be set against the farm and these last are what interests us here under the heading for Uh, London and Middlesex, is an entry which, until I came across it, had gone unnoticed. I said, probably because the pipe rolls hadn't been um, edited or calendared um, when the Scottish material was surveyed, and then this one still hasn't been. It's the account for expenses incurred in the execution of William Wallace. And the conveyance of his body parts to Scotland... The final account is also made up of a record of Wallace's crimes, the manner of his death, and the fate of his dismembered body. So here it is. Citizens of London, John of Lincoln, and Modula of Paris, render account for the same citizens. In disbursements and outlays made by the same sheriffs, for William Wallace, robber, public traitor, outlaw, the king's enemy, and rebel, who in contempt of the King throughout Scotland had falsely sought to call himself King of Scotland, and slew the King's officials in parts of Scotland, and also led an army in hostility against the King by sentence of the King's court at Westminster, being drawn, hanged, beheaded, his entrails burned, and his body quartered, whose four parts were dispatched to the four principal towns of Scotland. It's surely significant that in the two administrative records um, there is explicit reference to the quartered remains of, of Wallace's body. Even more significant that in the usually laconic uh, pipe roll, Wallace's crimes and the exact manner of his execution was recorded. And the obvious conclusion to be drawn is that Wallace was such a notorious figure and the manner of his crimes and of his death so remarkable that they were even recorded in financial accounts. And there are three main points to be made. Um, The first is that as a more or less exactly contemporary record, the pipe roll must provide the earliest account of the charges imputed to Wallace and the manner of his execution. And it could represent a description provided to the exchequer clerk by the sheriffs themselves. Secondly, the record of the charges against Wallace includes the otherwise unrecorded indictment that in contempt of the king throughout Scotland, he had falsely sought to call himself King of Scotland. This is quite startling stuff. The Annals of London are the only other source even to imply that Wallace had made such a claim uh, when it said that in the Great Hall of Westminster he was crowned with laurel leaves inasmuch as it was commonly said that in past times he'd claimed that he should wear a crown in that same hall. But this isn't the same as claiming to be King of Scotland. The view of the Scottish histories has always been that Wallace never sought the Scottish crown and certainly never called himself King of Scotland, a view not otherwise contradicted in the English sources. And finally, it's remarkable that in an administrative record of this nature, Wallace's crimes and the exact manner of his execution were recorded in such detail. Similar entries occur in earlier pipe rolls Um, and entries, um, recording, uh, hanging, drawing, quartering. But only the bare essentials are given in order to identify the criminal and the reason for payment. We already know that William Wallace was a peculiarly notorious figure in English eyes, but we're also led to conclude that not only the nature of his crimes, but also the manner of his execution were so remarkable that it was found necessary to give a narrative account of them in the normally unembellished financial accounts. I'll just end by saying that nearly all of the facts about Scottish heroes are shrouded in legend, but where real life is always more complicated than meets the eye and more interesting as a result. This talk was recorded on the 9th of May 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.